Elmore Leonard also said in his 10 rules, if it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. And, and to me, the writing has to flow and seem effortless, kind of like a ballet. Yeah. You, you don't see all the blood, sweat and tears that went into the final pro- production and, and nothing should jar or stand out or detract from the flow of, of the dance or from the, the story that we're writing. Hello there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Ozzy is in the studio with me. He he has a bit of a pouty face because we didn't get to go for a run this morning, but hopefully he'll be he'll, he'll be okay. This is episode five of season two, and I, I hope everyone's doing okay. Um, I was talking with my daughter Ashley she's a nursing student and she had said to us to uh, me and and my husband she goes we got a grasp on to whatever patience whatever empathy whatever resilience we have left we can hang in there people hang in there just I think of these next few months as the last mash episode Hawkeye was the resilient one throughout the entire MASH, MASH episodes, MASH seasons. And then when the war stopped, the war ended, that's when he kind of kind of lost it. So come on, folks, we can hang in there. And to give you some entertainment, I'm excited about today's podcast. We're having a discussion with our second multi-published author from Ottawa, Ontario. This author has over 20 published novels, and that's not including short stories. She has written the lauded Stone Child and Rouleau Police Procedural series, the Anna Sweet Mystery Novellas, and the Jennifer Banyan Mysteries for middle grade readers. Her work has been shortlisted for several awards, including four four Arthur Ellis Awards. Brenda Chapman, welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Hi, Joanna. It's so nice to speak with you today. Good. I'm, I'm glad to have you on here. I've been reading Closing Time, and what I enjoy, I always enjoy the little things an author puts in a novel, and you have many little things. And the the first one that just stood out for me because it made the scene so real was when the our character or your character Martha Loring and you write snapped the sheet toward the ceiling and let the fabric float gently onto the bed I could see it I could just so see it you know you're setting the scene and I would like to know what do you do to set those scenes? I, I know I've gone on to Pinterest and that's how my heroine's law office has now emerged because of what <laughs> I've seen on Pinterest. But what do you do to set the scene? I, well, I like your idea about Pinterest. I'll have to try that. I, I guess we authors truly are creating worlds out of our imaginations uh, from places we've seen or, uh, or been. 
and and so in this set in setting this particular scene of the the sheet uh, on the bed I pictured myself in the room making the bed and tried to make the reader feel as if they were there with me or with my my character Martha the the trick I guess is picking out those salient details that evoke a scene without writing so much description that the reader loses interest uh, it, it was Elmore Leonard in his 10 Rules of Writing who said to leave out the bits that readers skip over. So I worked to include enough detail to paint a picture and a feeling and, and a sense of place without going overboard. I, I try to include the five senses when I can. And, and I always think of them when I'm, I'm writing a description and what I can fit in and what would work. And I, I also try to use evocative language and to describe a location or an object in a different or original way that, that also seems natural to the story and to the characters. That's cool. Uh, yeah, I, I know I, I try to use the five sentences if it works for that particular scene. And mm -hmm. I've written down Elmore Leonard. I'm going to look that up. Yeah, you can find them on Google. They're oh. uh, his 10 rules of writing. I think uh, Stephen King also has, has quite a number of rules. That are worth reading over. Okay. Okay. Good. So, can you give our readers an idea of what closing time is about? Oh, sure. Uh, closing time is the seventh in the Stonechild and Rouleau police procedural series, which is mainly set in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, Officer Kayla Stonechild and her partner Paul Gunderson are part of the major crimes unit in Kingston, and Jacques Rouleau is their staff sergeant. And each book in the series is a separate crime and mystery with a different cast of suspects. But, but I developed the lives of several major characters throughout the series. In closing time, Stonechild uh, takes her teenage foster niece Dawn on a holiday to an isolated lodge north of Sault Ste. Marie, which I called Pine Hollow Lodge. And the lodge and the lake are fictional, but set in a real location east of the town of Searchmount, which is um, north of Sault Ste. Marie. The, law, um, the first night at the lodge, uh, they're served supper by a teenager named Rachel Eglin, who goes missing that night on her way home from work. Uh, and the next day, her body is found on the side of the road. And Stonechild is reluctantly drawn into the investigation, uh, which is being led by a former colleague named Clark Harrison, and she worked with him in Red Rock, Nipigon, back when she um, lived in northwestern Ontario. I, I guess in addition to the investigation, uh, I developed the, her relationship. She's grappling with her own personal situation. Uh, she's been involved with her partner, Gunderson, in a romantic way, and, and she's kind of at a crossroads deciding whether she wants to go back to Kingston and, and live with him and, and carry on their life together or um, you know, head north <laughs> and into the woods. And uh, I, I in introduce in the, the book an old boyfriend of hers from northwestern Ontario. Uh, and so she really has a lot of decisions to make. And uh, quite a few characters in this book are at a crossroads. Yeah, oh, wow. Lots of conflict. Lots mm -hmm. of conflict, for sure. Kayla Stonechild. Oh, my gosh. She is... Uh, awesome character and you know you say um about being drawn into this investigation and i as the reader 
I am very glad she gets drawn into this this investigation. The words that came to mind when I was when I was reading about her was that she I thought she has spirit, and mm-hmm. I don't mean that in a lively, bubbly kind of way. She just has this. For me, she had calm. She had strength. Um, she's flawed. She's genuine, and she has. There's just spirit about her. And then I and you worked it in so well. Like you, you wove it in. You didn't, you didn't come right out, like first out of the gate. We, the readers find out mm-hmm. that she's indig- indigenous. And I thought, yes. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to know, how did Kayla Stonechild come about? Well, I was, I was searching for an idea uh, for a series at, at the time. And I was working full time at the Department of Justice. Um, and I was um, a senior communications advisor, and I was lead on the what we call then the Aboriginal file, which I think now we call the Indigenous file. And, and part of my work included uh, reading up on all the news concerning Indigenous issues every morning. And I was also working with the department's Indigenous Advisory Board. So I I was really immersed in the issues, as well as working closely with my Indigenous colleagues. And a lot of what was going on in the news and what had gone on in the past uh, really disturbed me, um, as it has a lot of people. I just think of the missing and murdered Indigenous women, uh, the residential schools, conditions on reserves with the water, uh, the 60s scoop, racism, really terrible stuff. So Kayla came out of my frustration with what I was reading and and experiencing. Uh, Kayla, uh, as a character, was taken from her parents when she was three years old. Her parents had been in the residential school system and and really didn't know how to parent her. She's, as you said, highly intelligent. She's resourceful. She has a, a strong moral compass. And she's also a loner and doesn't like working with others and has a hard time committing to relationships at the start of the series in particular. Originally, uh, when I was coming up with my duo for the the series, I thought that she and Jacques Rouleau, her staff sergeant, would have equal time in the books. But Stonechild kind of took over as the lead character. She's uh, in her late 20s. And Rouleau's in his 50s. And through the, the series, he becomes a mentor and, and a father figure to her. And, and that really was the origin of Kayla Stonechild. Those are great relationships to write about. Mm-hmm. They are so warm. They are such, and they're pleasant to read. When you said mentorship and I thought of Rouleau, I thought, yeah, I can see it. Yeah. And and people at the start think that he's going to be her love interest. But, uh, but I never no. had that in mind. No, because everybody, yeah, you don't do what everybody expects, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it, it's interesting that when you were, had said that she's a bit of a loner, I immediately wrote down here, because I, I do, I keep, I write just little notes down. Writers and authors are a bit of loners. We're, we're loners a little bit as well, you know? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah it, I agree. Yeah. Kayla's relationship with her adopted niece, Dawn, is another relationship that was that is enjoyable to read. You know, it's it was the scene when they're having dinner, you know, because they're they they've gone to Pine Hollow Lodge. I don't want to give it all away. Okay, so <laughs> get away. 
I got the sense that Kayla's feeling that she's being pulled away from doing things with Dawn. And it was the scene when they're having dinner and Dawn, who's a teenager, says to Kayla, and I, I, if it's all right, I'd like to read this little bit of dialogue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dawn says to Kayla, you have to help find who killed Rachel. You're the only one who can. And oh my God, that caught me, you know, and (laughs) it's, it's like you said, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, thank God Kayla's been pulled into this. You know, thank God, you know, (laughs) so can you explain to the listeners the relationship between Dawn and Kayla? Um, was it based on any sort of personal experience? Well, uh, Dawn appears in book one, Cold Morning, as a 12-year-old, and she's living with her mother, Rose. And Rose and Kayla met as foster kids on a reserve when you know, they were quite young. And they got separated. And, and in Cold Morning, Kayla's on a search to find Rose. And when she does find her, she's got uh, her daughter, Dawn. Uh, they reconnect, but Rose's life doesn't isn't going very well. And she ends up uh, in, I think it's book two, being sent to Joliet Prison for a stretch. Uh, she made a bad choice. And she leaves Dawn with Stonechild, who's at first quite reluctant to take her on because she she doesn't know how to parent. She's never really been parented. So the relationship between Dawn and Kayla has many ups and downs throughout the series. Uh, Dawn, you know, starts out as 12 years old, and I think by the end she's about 15, which are are awful years for for teenagers, uh, (laughs) as most parents will attest. Uh, But throughout the series, they ultimately grow to love and and care for one another. And I think that comes across uh, in that that little bit you read. And um, it's hard for uh, Kayla to pass up on finding out what happened to Rachel because she's about the same age as Dawn and, and, and Dawn knows that. It's so, I find it really cool when you can learn about a character and then you, you just, you're connected with that character by, okay, two sentences in dialogue, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I wouldn't say that Dawn came from any personal experience that I had, although I did used to teach kids with learning issues and some had difficult family situations. So it's likely that I drew on, on some of their uh, experiences and, and feelings and conversations that I'd had, but no, nothing uh, really out of my life that uh, I, I knew any foster kids. Rachel is the teenager who is murdered in the novel. And that scene, it's impactful, but it's not gory. Okay, I'm just thinking for the listeners. Mm-hmm. Out there. Um, I remember reading a, a quote about Stephen King. Now, Stephen King writes, you know, horror novels. And he had mentioned about going for the total gross out. And <laughs> you don't, you don't do that. And, um, but it's still impactful. It was how you set it up, because you write in the third person. And the reader, I was there. And it was like, I'm the silent witness to what is what is happening and add into that equation equation that I'm a mom with two daughters who were Mm -hmm. once teenagers and they're grown now and but it doesn't you know like the scene is scary and it's sad and it's heart-wrenching and um, 
I've written difficult scenes and I've, I've had to go for a walk after. And after that scene, I'm wondering, did you have like a debriefing at all? <laughs> uh, well, writing the murder scenes is tough, especially killing off a character you've grown to like or one whose life is, is still before them. Yeah. That is, if you'd let them live. Yeah. I, I don't go in for describing the actual murder or for that matter, sex scenes in any detail, because that's not really something I like to read myself. Yeah. I think it, it's more powerful just to lead the reader to the crime and let their imaginations take over. Uh, unlike in perhaps a cozy mystery where the person murdered is usually nasty and had it coming and nobody misses them. I, I try to show the deep sorrow and pain that someone like Rachel's death causes for her parents. So it's not hard to empathize with their sorrow. However, at the end of the day, this is fiction and, and Rachel is a made up character. So I can, I can keep her, her death in perspective. Yeah. Uh, there, there have been instances though, where I've had to take a break. I was writing, uh, I remember a scary scene in one of my middle grade mysteries uh, called Hiding in Hawks Creek. My protagonist, Jennifer Bannon, was alone in a cottage during a storm, and it kind of freaked me out, to be yeah. honest. I had to take a walk after writing that scene because I think it brought up all my phobias. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it is, you know, they, the scenes do impact you in a, in a way. Well, the only thing I'm going to say is car headlights. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> oh, right? That's all I'm going to say. And they always say... That if the writer scares herself, she'll scare the reader, you know. Yeah. And hopefully, and often, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I know when after that scene, um, and like I say, listeners, it's not gory, okay? Um, but it is impactful. Later, when the authorities are looking for Rachel, literally, I'm propped up in bed reading. And in my head, in my head, I'm thinking, check the, you know, I'm not face. check the. <laughs> like you guys <laughs> that I think is really special that a, a writer and author can do that to the reader you know so uh, well thank you yeah what so when I'm reading my spouse also lived a year in Ontario and it was neat getting almost like a geography upgrade about Ontario and I'd, I'd say to him, oh, you know, the, in this part, they're talking about Sault Ste. Marie. And he goes, oh, yeah, going to going to Sioux. And I looked at him. I said, yeah, that's what, you, you know, that's that's what Brenda <laughs> mentions, going to Sioux, right? Yeah. And um, so I wanted to know, for instance, for me, I love Victoria. I've lived in Victoria for over 20 years. That's why I like writing about it. Um, you live in Ontario any specific reason why you wanted the series to take place in Ontario? Well, I've, I've spent my life in Ontario. Uh, I would say in Ottawa, we get a ton of snow. Usually we're having a, a year this year that we haven't got a lot, but some years it's just an incredible amount of snow. Uh, but I, I've set my books in Ontario because this is the area of the world that I know the best. Uh, actually, I grew up in a small community called Terrace Bay, uh, which was about 2,000 people, and it's just east of Thunder Bay on Lake Superior. But I've lived in Ottawa most of my life now, and I, I've traveled around most of the province and feel comfortable writing about the places and people. And as for setting closing time north of the Sioux, 
this really is my love letter to the north and my childhood in Terrace Bay. The topography is rugged and beautiful. And if, if you've ever made that drive, maybe your husband has, uh, from the Sioux around Lake Superior to Thunder Bay, you really you really should put it in your on your bucket list if you haven't done it yet. It's just a, a gorgeous stretch of, of of country. Okay, so oh, I I have one more one yeah, more yeah. point to make. I guess uh, early on I had an agent who told me that I should set my books in the U.S. if I wanted to sell books. So I wrote my first adult murder mystery. It's called In Winter's Grip. It's a standalone, and I set it in northern Minnesota mainly because it's just kind of south of Thunder Bay, so I, I knew the, the area. But after that book, I decided that Canada is home, and it's the place I want to write about, and so I'm just going to do it and not worry too much about being an international bestseller. And how many of us were told that? You know, it's set mm-hmm. in the U.S., and it's, but, you know, like you said, Ontario is your home. I don't know anything about the United States, except I like going to Maui for three weeks in a year, right? So, yeah. And how, how would you even get the people and the setting right if, if you don't know it intimately, is, is what I've come to believe. And, you know, the Scandinavian authors, um, Stieg Larsson and uh, all of that set, they've, they've done just fine. And their topography is as cold and bleak as anything that we can put out there. So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So with the responsibility of being an author or and being a writer, you know, there's the the great moments when you you carve a great sentence and you're just like yourself saying, I love this. (laughs) But I also believe that a good writer, a good author needs to be brutally honest with her own work. And I've been, I've worked on this one scene and it was one day when we had the power out for 14 hours. So I was not in a good place. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm I'm proofreading and I came across this scene of my own and I'm reading it and I thought, this is garbage. This is absolutely Mm -hmm. garbage. You know, like Mm -hmm. this doesn't doesn't push, doesn't move the story forward. You know, so before I was ready to like highlight and delete I thought, okay, let's see how we can work with it. Yeah. Um, have you ever looked at something you've written and thought this has got to go, or <laughs> this needs major rewrites? Like how how hard on your like? I'm going to be honest. I do not. How do I say this? I am not Stephen King, <laughs> so I don't. I don't think I have. And ego wrapped up in my written, and I'm not saying Stephen King, Stephen King does not have an ego. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just, I'm not a person who is so wrapped up that I cannot let go of these words I've written. You know, if anything, I'm like out, you know, so how, how hard are are you on yourself? Um, Do you, do you put your writing away for six weeks and then come back to it with fresh eyes? Well, I seem to get harder on myself with every project. Maybe it's the more you know, the more you know you don't know. I've written chunks of text that I end up deleting, and I've actually rewritten entire manuscripts based on feedback. So I'm not precious about what I write. Uh, You know, I worked in the government for uh, 18 years, and there were so many levels of approval and rewrites that I just got used to the process and not feeling like I owned the final product. 
But that said, it's quite satisfying when very few changes are made to what I, I finally submit to a publisher. Elmore Leonard also said in his 10 rules, if it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. And, and to me, the writing has to flow and seem effortless, kind of like a ballet. Yeah. You, you don't see all the blood, sweat and tears that went into the final pro production and, and nothing should jar or stand out or detract from the flow of, of the dance or from the, the story that we're writing. That's and right. I think most writers would tell you that their first draft is garbage and needs a lot of work. And yeah. accepting that just makes life easier. Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've said porridge. <laughs> <laughs> porridge is a good word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned about the government because I've, I've been, I'm looking this year is the year I'm going to retire from the government. And it's so mm. true. You know, your work, what you write. Now, I wasn't in communications, but the number of eyes that have been on something you've put together and yeah. 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 No, it uh, it's humbling, I guess. <laughs> but, but it's also good because it, it makes you more objective about about it. I mean, you own the story, but you know that it can get better. It can always get better. Yes. yes. Yeah. OK. So Kayla Stonechild, Staff Sergeant Willow, Dawn, all very believable characters. You have produced... Uh, now I'm guessing a book a year with two series. Yes. Wow. <laughs> wow. You are now ending the Stone Child and Rouleau series. Yes. And you have lived with these characters for eight years. You've thought about them in your sleep. Do you feel like you're saying goodbye to old friends? I do. And, and it's amazing how characters in your fictional world almost become real. Even they, they even become real to readers, which amazes me. I've had uh, readers tell me that they miss them and, and they ask me to write another book. Uh, but I guess I've moved on. I, li I like to think of Stonechild and the crew living their lives off the page somewhere real happy. <laughs> yeah. With being brutally honest and with you ending um, actually, it's two series you're, you're ending. Yeah, they both uh, finished up. So. Wow. As hard as it may be, do you, do you believe there is a responsibility on that author who you've written great stories? And like you said, you know, your readers, their readership are saying they miss these characters. But there is a time when the author knows it's the last curtain call. Yeah, we all know of, of series that appear to go on too long. Uh, but that has to be actually because there's a demand from from readers. But I'm I'm personally of the view of leaving readers wanting more, rather than just having them drop away with each book because the characters or the storyline are getting repetitive or predictable. Yeah, yeah I, I like new challenges and growing myself as a writer, even if this approach is frightening. I have to say it's like taking a leap off of somewhere comforting into the unknown. Uh, but it, at the same time, it's a bit bittersweet, uh, like when I said goodbye to Stonechild and Rouleau. Yeah. Uh, there'll always be the seven books to reread, though, so yeah. that's something. Nice. You know, the reason I I like asking, it's because I'm on the opposite end, okay? I'm I'm mm -hmm. starting. So I'm, I'm always curious about, okay, when's it time, you know? So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, okay. And 
thinking about that, I looked at your title differently when I was, I was thinking up questions and I was thinking about how you're ending the series. And I looked at the title, Closing Time, and I thought it made me think of there's a, a pop song out there, Closing Time, which I really <laughs> like. And um, is that title like an homage to the conclusion of this series? I, I think so. I stuck, actually, it's kind of funny. I stuck Closing Time on the manuscript only as a placeholder because I knew it was going to be the last book. But it really came to fit the story, as you say. And, and I also like that it's an homage to Leonard Cohen, who wrote oh. such beautiful poetry in his songs. And I always like bringing some Canadiana into my, into my books. Cool. Now, this series, Stone Child and Rouleau series, is a police procedural. So now let's shift gears and talk about P.I. Anna Sweet. <laughs> I love that. Which is another <laughs> series. You've been writing for eight years and it's ending. And on Amazon, it says it's intended for adult basic education and for individuals whom English is a second, second, (laughs) having trouble speaking, is a second language. That's right. Mm -hmm. Now, the PI Anna Sweet series, those are novellas and I wanted to know if there is a difference in your plotting and your writing with the P.I. Anna Sweet series. Yeah, uh, well, definitely there is. Uh, well, in, in some ways and in other ways not. Well, the Anna Sweet novellas are shorter books for sure. They're 15,000 words about as opposed to 90,000 for a Stone Child novel. The story arc is still kind of the same. And they're written for adult comprehension with adult themes, including like murder, adultery, drinking in bars, the things that make life interesting. The difference is that the language and sentence structure in the novellas are simpler. Uh, the plots are more straight ahead with not a lot of flashback. And I, But I had to come up with engaging mysteries and plots and likable complex characters so that the books really were a, a good challenge. Uh, I taught adult literacy and, and like quite a few years ago, and was really excited to write this series. Uh, Grassroots Press has just made the eight books into audio books that can be purchased on their website. In addition to, they're also in ebook and paperback format. So yeah, they. So really, they're they're just good stories written at a, at a simpler uh, level, yeah. uh, but they have the same adult comprehension. And and I have. Um, people who read them who do not have um, reading issues and they like them. So, so it'd be also to me now there's a publisher on the coast. I think it's Orca. Yes. That would, that used to I actually wrote them. one for them too, before okay, the suite. Yeah. Okay. So they're the, the quick reads. Yes. They yeah. Are. They're like, yeah. And I remember, uh, can you tell I want to go to Maui? <laughs> I remember being on a plane to Maui. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and um, I, I took, because I took about three of these. I, I like paper books, okay? And I, I took about three of these, and it was great sitting on the plane. Reading yeah, they're books. very, very quick to read. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, a plane trip, you could go through one. And and just like in the uh, Stonechild books, I developed my characters. So Anna's sweet. Um, well, we'll get into that. But, yeah, so... Uh, reading from the first to the the end, you do have a development of characters. Okay, 
Okay, so you're writing the Stone Child series and the Anna Sweet series at the same time. And then you have the Jennifer Banyan mysteries. And I was wondering, do you, it's almost like you're playing a form of series ping pong, writing these novels. <laughs> and I, I go, I'm, I'm thinking that's a lot of voices, you know, character <laughs> So when you, how do you do it? Like, do you, when you need a break from the Stone Child series, do you then pick up the Anna Sweet series, um, or are you scribbling dialogue? You want you like does when like when? How do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'd first say the Jennifer Bannon books I wrote. They were they were the first series I wrote, and they were uh, my heroine, my protagonist Jennifer is. Uh, 14 years old. So I wrote them for my two daughters. And I wrote the first book running scared, and it got accepted. And then I wrote another one without a contract, and they just kept getting accepted. So there were four in the end. So those were done with. And then I wrote a couple of standalones in Winter's Grip and a, another one. And then I got the Stone Child series. And almost at the same time, I got I was contracted to write the Anna Sweet books for adult literacy. So the um, Anna Sweet books take about three months to write, and they're like a palate cleanser between the Stone Child books, which take nine to ten months. And I would have, as you said, that they'd both be due the same year, sort of opposite ends of the year. So I'd finish one and then start right into the other series. But, but I only concentrated on one at a time, and I found this confusing enough. The, the Anna Sweets are first person, told by Anna, and the Stone Childs are third person. And sometimes I'd find I'd, I'd written a passage that was in the wrong person. Oh, <laughs> I would have Kayla Stonechild doing it in the first person when it should have been the third. But, you know, that, that all works out. And some of the details I'd kind of mix up because the Stone Childs were set in Kingston yeah. and Anna Sweets were set in Ottawa. And I would, you know, mix up sometimes. But, but I, I eventually straightened it out and... I'm, I'm really not a big scribbler, but sometimes I would jot down an idea for one book while working on the other series, but but nothing in great detail. Okay. So do you plot the books out or are you more of a, a prancer, uh, a pantser? Pantser, <laughs> yeah, the pantser. Yeah, <laughs> I, I fly by the seat of my pants. I'm I'm a pantser. Uh, I do. I do come up with the crime, though, and who did it and the motive before I start writing. Okay. okay. And then I work towards that. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I I haven't read the Anna Sweet novels yet. Um, as as you can imagine, I have a tight window of reading time, you know, and I have to stick stick to my schedule, you know, because I want to produce a quality podcast, you know. Yes. So I. I want to know about these books but my god the number of ones the number of books I've read where I'm like okay, I want to go to the previous one <laughs> it was like, oh, well, if, if you ever get on a plane you could take one with you <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. pretty quick reads yeah so um can you give our readers an idea of what type of literary literary ride they'll be embarking on and I have had coffee I've just my the words aren't working with me, the spoken words. So what type of literary ride they'll be embarking on if they, when they pick up a P.I. Anna Sweet novel? Sure. Um, Anna Sweet 
was a rookie cop in Ottawa, uh, engaged to another cop named Jimmy Wilson. But he sleeps with her younger sister, Cherry, and ends up marrying her. And oh, wow. this, this all takes place before the books. And they have uh, a little boy who's about six. But Anna has, uh, before the books start, has had another traumatic event in the line of duty, uh, which is revealed later in the books. But she chucks her, her police career, moves to the United States, and starts bartending her way across the country. And that's where we find her in a little town called Kermit, Texas, slinging beer. Uh, oh, cool. And we meet her in My Sister's Keeper, which is book one in the series. And her father, who's an old army guy, phones her late one night to say that Cherry, her sister, has been in a car accident and is asking for Anna. And you can imagine they haven't really had much of a relationship since Cherry <laughs> married Anna's fiance. So Anna comes, comes back to Ottawa and finds out uh, that Cherry believes her husband, Jimmy, is trying to kill her. And that's mm. the start of the series. And Anna stays after um, My Sister's Keeper and sets up a PI shop with another ex-cop, Jada Price. Uh, and they solve murders that happen all around the city. And again, just like in the Stone Child series, I developed the lives of, of my main characters. They're a lot of fun. They were a lot of fun to write. Cool. So you can see they're so, they're adult themes and they're adult. They, they the stories appeal to adult comprehension, even though they're written a little simpler and, and shorter. <laughs> well, definitely lots of conflict. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I mean, gosh, family conflict, internal conflict. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. do you ever sometimes? I'm just thinking about you know novels we write. Do you ever sometimes say to yourself, okay? Like I've done this where I thought, okay, Joe, why can't you just write something a little lighter, a little easier, <laughs> not so heavy? <laughs> well, you know what? There's a lot of humor in these books too, in the Stone Child books, um, which, yeah, 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 they're, uh, they're, they're good. They're good little reads. Good. Okay. I'm just going to shift back, coming near the end here, thinking about closing time. This is uh, this is my favorite question, and I'm I'm <laughs> trying this this season. I'm trying to tweak it a little bit more. So, in closing time, you and Kayla Stonechild are in the restaurant, in the lodge, in your novel. <laughs> Kayla sits down at your table. What do you think she would say to you, and what would you say back? Yeah, I, I think Kayla Stonechild would say, or, or I hope what she would say is, uh, thank you for creating me with, with such respect and sensitivity for the person I am at my core. Uh, and, and she'd say, I'm glad that you showed the good and the bad and gave me so many loyal and kind people in my life and had me grow and mature as a person. And I guess I'd say back, you know, you're welcome and thank you for being such a complex and sympathetic person and letting me spend some time in your world. I really think uh, both Kayla Stonechild and Anna Sweet are people I would really enjoy being friends with. Oh, that's that shows a lot if the author wants to be friends with her characters. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in your closing, in closing time, now you may have poetry in other novels, but I, I noticed it this time. There's poetry in the novel. And uh, you mentioned Leonard Cohen. 
And I think this week, the world got a good taste of the power of war of words. When poet laureate Amanda Gorman recited her poem at the inauguration, I stopped. I stopped what I was doing and I just watched and I listened. And I, I thought this is a drop the mic type moment. And I was I thought I saw in my research that you also like poetry. Yeah, I love poetry. Yeah. Amanda's uh, inauguration poem was so powerful and just brilliant and moving. Uh, just perfect for the, the time and the occasion, I thought. Yeah, I, I wrote poetry in high school and studied it in university. In fact, uh, one of the poems, uh, the one uh, in Rachel's book that yeah. Kayla uncovered, I wrote that back in university. I wrote that poem then. And I, nice. I made up the other one for the the book. So I, um, I also, I took a year long creative writing course in university where we wrote poetry and short stories. And I also, uh, I have a Canadian poetry textbook that I'll pull out now and then to reread some of my favorites. Uh, and I'm also a huge fan of T.S. Eliot and reread his work often. Have you ever thought of um, having your own, publishing your own or having published a, your own poetry book? No, I haven't actually, but uh, maybe I'll get back to it one day. I've been kind of immersed in these novels. They take a lot of time. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, writing three series, mystery series, hey? <laughs> Short stories. Yeah. Take up no time. Right? <laughs> one more thing on your plate. Right? Yeah. yeah, I do remember my grade 10 English teacher, Ms. Anaka. Mm -hmm. And she introduced poetry to us through music mm -hmm. and, you know, Bob Dylan. Yeah. I, I don't have any of his songs, but what I have listened, like I have, don't have any, I'm going to date myself. I don't have any records or CDs or I, I haven't downloaded. I should mm -hmm. I think about it. Yeah, you can find them all on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet you they're on Spotify as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. I look at Bob Dylan's lyrics and I'm just like, wow. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. Yeah. Okay. He's a poet for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Brenda, is there anything, anything you would like to add and, and where can our listeners find you on the socials? Well, I think we've covered a lot. Uh, I, I have a website, brendachapman.ca. I'm on Twitter as Brenda A. Chapman and Facebook as Brenda Chapman author. I love hearing from people, but I, I might warn those looking for me on social media that there is another Brenda Chapman. She's a director in Hollywood. Uh, she directed <laughs> Lion King, I think, and a bunch of other Disney movies. And I occasionally get emails through my website asking me to read a, a play or to attend an L.A. party. <laughs> oh. I'm thinking this other Brenda Chapman is leading a much more exciting life than I am, but... Uh, and I, I did send her a message once of support when she was up for an Academy Award. And she replied. She replied to me. And she won the award. It was for Pixar's Brave. So I, that was kind of cool. But anyhow, you can find me if you do a, a search on, on any of the Google or, or any of those. You should go to one of the parties. I should. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well you... You said brendachapman.ca, yes, right? Yes, brendachapman.ca. Because I will make sure your website is in the podcast show notes as well. 
So, Brenda, thank you uh, for coming on my podcast. Thanks, Joanna. That was a lot of fun. Good. And um, listeners, if you, you like what you hear, you think I'm doing an okay job, please just go on to jcvartstudio.net and click subscribe. Um, or if you're on Spotify, click follow. Brenda, have a good afternoon. Thank you for joining me. Well, it's been great, Joanna. Thank you. And any net new books coming out, give me, you know, connect with me because I'd love to have you on here. Oh, again. that'd be great. Thank you. Bye now. Bye.